Well, you might like to turn with me to uh, Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And uh, I want to read 17 to 23. So this will be our second last uh, look into Romans. And before I read from verse 17, let's uh, pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you for the encouragements that we find in it. Thank you for the exhortations we find. Uh, Thank you too for the warnings which we'll come to this evening. And we pray you be amongst us as we consider your word together. Help us to apply all that we've learned to our own lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So, So Paul's coming to the end of his letter as we noted last time. And uh, verse 17 he says, I appeal to you brothers... To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me, and the whole church greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother, Quartus, greets you. Amen. Well, it's it's good to remember that this is a, a letter that Paul wrote. Uh, to the church in Rome. And I know that we don't uh, tend to write letters too much today. Um, talk to a young person today about letter writing, they think, well, I've just got my phone. <laughs> I can just text people, which is fair enough. I'm not complaining about that at all. Uh, most, most, mostly today, I mean, my communication, for example, is done mostly uh, through email or the phone and a bit of text messaging. A lot of it is also done through social media and so on. Um, but these are the days when people actually wrote letters. <laughs> I actually got a you know, medium to write on, a bit of parchment or something, and they have a pen, and they would write. And, uh, and Paul is writing his letter, and after discussing various matters, uh, the letters would, ex- would finish with uh, a, an exchange of greetings. You know, so listing all of those people and people sending their greetings and please convey our greetings to, to your people as well and, and so on. And, and that's what Paul is doing here. And he's giving some uh, instructions and some reminders um, about what to do. He's kind of like a parent writing to a child. And, uh, you know, when your mother writes to you when you're a student, and if some of you are students and your mother writes to you and says, remember to do this and don't forget to do that and wash your underwear and stuff like that. <laughs> and and 
you know, Paul's got loftier things to think about than that, but he's, he's giving final instructions to people. And uh, for, for those of us who have been with us here, uh, here for the last few weeks and followed Paul with us, you'll have seen how he has been teaching and instructing these Romans um, about the gospel and its implications. And, and so in verse th- uh, chapter 15, verse 13, he's, he tells us uh, why he has been doing all this. So verse 13, chapter 15, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Uh, he wants to, to elevate their sense of hope to give them a sense of joy and peace in the gospel. That no matter what they're facing, no matter what trials they're facing, they have that sense of joy and peace in the gospel. The gospel remains central to Christians, regardless of what is happening to you in your life. Whether you're in the heights of joy yourself, or whether you're suffering under the, uh, the oppressions of uh, your work or your or people against Christians generally being persecuted, whatever it is, uh, Paul wants us to always keep our minds focused upon the gospel, and in doing so, then our joy gets to be full, even in the midst of trials. And this amazing thing that Paul is is doing here. Last week we we looked at the first sixteen verses, and we see a great number of greetings being shared. Uh, with, uh, that Paul is sharing, uh, offering to his friends and passing on some of his own greetings. And it's, as we noted yes, last week, it's all the more remarkable because Paul hasn't actually yet been to Rome. But he's heard about people, or he's maybe met some of them on his missionary journeys. And he's heard about them, and he's been praying for them. And he mentions them and says, you know, greet so-and-so and remember them to me, uh, me to them. And if he had finished his letter like that, we could understand him just finishing at verse 16. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. End of letter, perhaps. But Paul's not yet finished. He's got a bit more just to say. I'm sure it depends on the length of parchment he had. If he had longer parchment, he might have said more. What an amazing thing that would be. But he's not finished there yet. And he's just got a bit more to say. And he says, you know, he is, remember he said earlier in verse 14 and 15, uh, I myself am satisfied about you. So he's, he's very happy with the Roman church. He's heard so much that is good about the Roman church. He's satisfied about them. And there's a real warmth in Paul, and there's a real thankfulness to God for them. But then he closes with warnings. Some warnings to look out for. And Paul regularly does that in his letters. Because he's always concerned that the gospel that they have received, by which they have been so changed and transformed... That the gospel and its fruits continue to flourish. And the danger is that all of that could be lost if the people in the church cease to be careful 
And look out for those who teach something else. How important it is that a church has its ears up listening to the teaching. Listening to the teaching of preachers, yes. Listening to the teaching of one another. So that you are not susceptible to false teaching. And churches can easily drift, can't they? Because not... Not because often because the, the eldership or the minister is preaching, isn't preaching his heart out. Usually, often he is in an evangelical church. But sometimes the evangelical Christians get a little sloppy. Stop thinking. Stop praying. Stop paying much attention. And they find that the truth that they say they hold to actually isn't quite so rock solid in their lives. So Paul is concerned about those who may come in to the church and cause all kinds of trouble. So I've got four things to say this evening from this passage. Number one, keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. This is to you and me. Keep your eyes open. Secondly, see the heart of the matter. Keep the main thing the main thing. See the heart of the matters. Thirdly, Be wise, don't be foolish. And then fourthly, believe in the victory of God. Believe in the victory of God. Here's the first thing, keep your eyes open. Paul makes this this appeal in verse 17. To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. And this is a call to everybody who hears this letter. So it's a call to you this evening. To watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Keep your eyes open for this. Pay attention to what's going on. It's very important as as Christians, you and I, we keep our eyes open. And It's a bit like being a soldier in the army and you need to be on your guard constantly. Keeping a lookout on the field of battle. And we are constantly in the field of battle. And we need to have our eyes open to the danger of the enemy. You see, if a soldier switches off and relaxes and begins to doze a bit and the battle continues all around him, then there's great danger. There's a hole in the defenses, if you like. And so too with Christians. You know, that while we, need, we know peace with God through the gospel, Paul wants us to know and experience that peace. Nonetheless, we are still to be alert at this stage of history of redemption of anyone who disrupts that peace we have with God. That's the danger, you see. People coming in and disrupting the peace that we have found with God because they teach something that's different from the gospel of God. The gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's Paul concerned about? Well, there's a couple of things that he says here, and they're both connected to each other. Uh, First is, people who cause divisions. In other words, people who form parties or camps within the church. That's going to be a great danger, can't it? You get these factions. And I've heard so many cases of churches that have factions that grow up against each other. 
And it's, it's a real danger to the church. It destroys the church. And then the second is those who cause obstacles to believing what the apostles have taught. So you understand what that's saying. You, there is the gospel that is preached and taught week by week and then somebody new comes in and they start teaching something else. Or they create obstacles and make it difficult for people to believe. They're always throwing out questions that, that cause people to doubt or, or question what they're, being, they're discovering in the scriptures. So people who cause divisions and those who cause obstacles to believing what the apostles have taught. Now these two things I think are connected but they concern the peace of the church and the truth that that church holds to. So here's the, here's the kind of scenario that could happen. People have, in a church have received the gospel and they've been taught it and its implications, but then somebody new comes along and professes faith in Jesus Christ and, and then after a while starts teaching a, a modified set of doctrines. And it may be that at first, of, at first instance you don't quite notice that there's a difference. Maybe it's a pretty profound difference, but sometimes it's, it's dressed up in a way that you don't really see it at first. And it's accompanied by smooth talk and flattery. Person's always saying thank you and saying you're such a great person and you're such a great teacher, you're such a great this and a great that, and they're flattering you and they're getting into your confidence and so on, and everybody's thinking that's such a nice guy or a nice lady. They're such nice people, wonderful people. But then you have, after a while, you have a group of people within the church that begin to see things differently from the church, the rest of the church. This faction begins to grow up within the church. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well, uh, shouldn't we be able to disagree about things and have healthy discussion about things and still be friends and still be at peace? Well, what Paul is concerned about here are about matters that so change the heart of the gospel such that salvation is no longer possible. Think of that example in Galatians chapter 1. And Paul says, and it's something of an outburst, it's, it's quite a shocking start to a letter, I think. A lot of his letters are very encouraging to the church. But in, in Galatians chapter 1, he says in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. It's quite shocking, isn't it? Any other gospel leaves people under condemnation. They're still in their sins. And they cannot know the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. They cannot, they're still under the dominion of sin and the condemnation of sin. And so they can't know the salvation of Christ. 
of that false gospel. And here's the danger. A, a church that has lost its first love. And you, know, you know what I mean by that. You, everybody, when they become a Christian, they, they love the Lord Jesus Christ. But over time, you find that there are some Christians who seem to lose their love, their first love. But a church that's like that, that loses its focus on proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, the simple gospel, that's a church that becomes, gets into real trouble. Those are the kinds of churches that also become quite inward looking. They're always thinking about themselves. They, they actually become tolerant of sin as well. They, uh, they become hypocrites. And relationships begin to break down within the church. So what do you do with people who cause that kind of trouble? Well, Paul's solution is a, a very simple one at the end of verse 17. Avoid them. Avoid them. Avoid people like that. Don't have anything to do with them. Okay, Paul, do, do, don't you think that's a bit unloving? Um, shouldn't we interact with them and try and persuade them otherwise? That's not what Paul says. He says, avoid them. Why does he do that? It tells you how serious the situation is. You get somebody who comes and wants to preach and teach and teach false doctrine. Get out of there. Get out of that church. Leave. Go somewhere else. Your soul is too precious to God to stay under that kind of ministry. You know, if you have somebody who's infected with a contagious illness, do you say to everybody, well, you know, just, just you interact with them and, and do what you can to help? If, if they've got a contagious illness, you quarantine them for the sake of everyone else. And that's what Paul is, is saying here. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ appoints shepherds over the flock um, Men who are equipped to deal with such people, pastors, teachers, elders, overseers, and their job, one of their jobs, is to take the action that is necessary. And if those people are are members of a church, to take discipline, uh, to implement discipline and instruct people. And if not, they're to be evangelized, but they're not to be received into the body of the church until they're uh, believing the gospel. So we need to keep our eyes open. Here's the second thing. See the heart of the matter. See the heart of the matter. Now here's a question. What is it that really causes uh, or drives people to create divisions and cause obstructions to the gospel? Well, Paul sees this very clearly. He sees it in verse 18. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites. It's quite a shocking statement. They serve their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. But the basic problem here is they're driven by their appetites. Um, You see, either people will serve Christ, or they'll serve their appetites. You might want to look with me at uh, James chapter 4. 
James speaks the same kind of message. James 4 verse 1. He says, what, what is it that causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's quite a question, isn't it? If you look across the history of, uh, let me say, Presbyterian churches, often the divisions that seem to have beset Presbyterian churches are, mark, are, are characterized in terms of doctrinal issues. But perhaps a more likely reason for divisions are the passions at war within you. The passions that are... See, that's a, this is a, such a warning to churches. What's really going on in the hearts of people who have these divisions? See, always going on in our hearts are the appetites which are fallen and sinful. And they often drive us to things. And we can dress them up as, as righteous doctrinal issues. But they may not be. They may be at root. They may be just heart appetites. I desire recognition. I desire people to pay attention to me. Pretty shocking. Now, you, you may think that's a bit simplistic and black and white. Actually, it's entirely consistent with what Paul has already taught about the nature of salvation. Do you remember how he described it? Uh, back in chapter 6, um, chapter 6, verse 18, uh, he says this. Having been set free from... Uh, oh, sorry, verse 17. I've got the wrong verse altogether. Let's look at verse 12. (laughs) Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. That's the verse. Let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. And the point about sin is that it captures our passions and drives us along. And sometimes we think we're doing the right thing because we're following our passions. Isn't that the way of the world? All these, all these secular saints that are on the wall at the back here, they have this idea, you just follow your passions, do the things you love. And actually, Paul is saying that's, what, that's where sin is. And Paul is saying here, is if, if you have a false gospel... You have no power to be definitively separated from that sin of passion in your heart. You cannot, that cannot be broken except through the Jesus Christ of the gospel. And if you don't have that Jesus Christ of that gospel, you don't have him at all. And you can never be broken from sin. And therefore the passions continue within the church. So what marks such people out? Well, under the surface of smooth talk and flattering words, which make people think that they're so nice, there's simply at heart a desire to serve self. This is what false teachers do. They want to serve themselves. Now, one of the things I'm increasingly glad of in our denomination is the length of time it takes to prepare a man for ministry. It takes years. 
And not just going off to theological college, but years of interaction with our existing ministers and the committees we set up and all the rest of it. And it may seem to some people like it's arduous and slow. But actually one of the things it does is allow the church as a whole to see not only a man's gifts and his work, but also to understand a man's heart and his motivations for ministry. In fact, I'm almost at the point where I would argue today that we almost don't do enough of it in our denomination, even if we do it for years. Who can know the hearts? That's the problem. Because it's perfectly possible, you see, for a man to present himself for ministry and say all the right things, but still have a heart that is given over to false doctrine and satisfying personal desires. And it takes time to know a man and to know whether he is serving Christ or serving himself. And how important it is, therefore, that there are people who can teach the apostolic doctrine uh, to the church. It's only this that can save people. It's only this that can lead people to forgiveness of sins and a clear conscience. And it's only this that can lead people from the continuing rule of sin in their life. Only Christ can do that. The Christ of the gospel. Here's the third thing. Be wise. So having made this appeal, Paul, and having looked at the heart of the problem, Paul urges his readers in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. And again, Paul emphasizes uh, his own response to their Christian walk. Uh, your obedience is known to all. Oh, he's, he's happy with that. And Paul rejoices in them. So there's no sense in which he's rebuking them here. Um, but Paul knows the hearts of men well enough uh, to know that dangers always lurk for them. And so he urges them to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What are they to be wise to? Well, clearly in this setting, Paul is concerned that they are not led astray by false teaching and corresponding factionalism. And he wants them to be innocent of it. In other words, he wants them not to participate in it. So wisdom is a sign of maturity, isn't it? This this, this is why we need to grow as Christians in maturity and take it seriously, our growth as Christians. You know, it's one thing to teach a child what is good and what is evil, but the child, as he or she grows up, becomes wise when she or he is able to spot the dangers in advance so that he or she doesn't blunder into evil. It's one thing for the parent always to be saying, no, don't do this, don't do that, don't go here, don't do that. But eventually you hope your child will grow up and say, I'm not going to do that because that's bad, and I'm going to do this because it's good. Because they grow in wisdom, you see. They grow and they begin to take responsibility for their lives before God. And so too in the church of Jesus Christ. How we need to be wise in our day. And that wisdom is only found in Jesus Christ. 
In Corinthians 1.30 says that Christ is our wisdom. He's our righteousness and our salvation, our redemption and so on. But he's also our wisdom. Christ is our wisdom. And that wisdom of Christ, because we are, we are united to Christ by faith, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we're bonded to Jesus Christ. Uh, that wisdom of Christ is communicated to us. And we grow in wisdom. As we study and meditate on the scriptures. And the scriptures are vital for it. That's why we call on people to come to meetings like this. So that we can together we can meditate on the word of God. But then also privately you can read the word of God and meditate on it yourself. So Paul speaks of Timothy. Remember young Timothy. And he says about how from childhood... You, Timothy, have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So we need to grow in wisdom. Are you growing in wisdom today? Are you growing in wisdom? Are you eager to know Christ and his word? So that when it comes to to living in this world with all its dangers, with all its threats, you're equipped to be innocent of evil. Are you taking every opportunity to grow in wisdom? Finally, believe in the victory of God. Believe in the victory of God. Paul says in verse... uh, I'm looking at the wrong verse. Let me just... (laughs) Yeah, verse 20. I've got 16 written down for some reason. Verse 20. He says something quite surprising. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that's surprising because it may remind us of something that we have read before. So where else do we hear about Satan being crushed? The head of the serpent being crushed. Genesis 3.15. Famous old verse. The Lord speaks to the serpent whom he has cursed. And he says, should have looked up. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is such an important verse If you've been coming to this church for any length of time, you'll hear me refer to it frequently. But Genesis 3.15 is a verse that actually defines what is really happening in all of history. The crushing of the serpent, the seed of the serpent by the seed of the woman. And you can trace that through the Old Testament. When you see all these episodes of battles going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And there's one way to see, a pair of spectacles if you like, to see the narrative of the Old Testament. is this battle that's going on between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And then it comes to this crescendo at the... The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, who on the cross uh, struck that definitive blow against the seed of the serpent. 
where Satan himself is defeated and victory is declared at the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what Paul seems to be doing here in this verse at the end of Romans is it kind of takes us high above the battlefield where the church is waging spiritual warfare. And we see the big picture. We see the big picture of God's plans and purposes which results in the crushing of Satan and his head. And we see the victory of God in Jesus Christ. And here's the thing. The definitive blow was struck on the cross itself. But now what's happening is Paul is telling us in another letter that everything is being brought under the feet of this kingly rule of Jesus Christ. So the the definitive blow has been struck in the past on the cross. And now everything is being brought under the feet of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here that Satan will be crushed under your feet also. It's not us that's doing it though, it's God that's doing it. God is crushing Satan under our feet. Now we can't deny that we're involved in the application of that victory. In our obedience, in our faithfulness. And that's being played out in our lives. But in the midst of it all, God is crushing the head of the serpent. What a glorious picture of the church of Jesus Christ. Not some sad little group of believers, but head crushers under God. And this is a church that's seeking to be wise in studying the scriptures, to resist doing evil, being aware of the dangers of false teachers who are beholden to their appetites. We are called to be involved in a spiritual battle. But what a wonderful comfort that it is God who brings the victory. And that victory is secure. God will crush the head of the serpent. Because of that, we can be sure that we will be overcomers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wonderful word and the blessing of it, the encouragement of it. We pray that you'd enable us to be wise as to what is right and good and innocent of what is evil. You'd help us to have our eyes open to bad teaching. And Lord, help us. Help us to overcome sins in our lives by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.